Well, good morning to each of you. There we go. So at least someone's got my back today. Well, we are in uh, week three of the Epiphany series. Uh, as I've been saying, if you've missed us over the last few weeks, you have missed so much. Our first week in the Epiphany season, actually, we've, we started this series called Real Veiled. And the idea is this, that, that God, through Jesus, reveals himself in a real way to all people. That is what Epiphany is all about. And so the first week of Epiphany, we had a guest speaker named Seth Major, who is the church planner of Reachway Church in New Lenox. And he shared this thought with us, that, that God reveals himself in a humble reveal. And he shared with us that, that in baptism, God didn't come down and, and, and part all these people and become the center of attention, but rather he was lined up with, with tax collectors and prostitutes and, and cousins and brothers and everybody else. He was ordinary. And so it was kind of this humble reveal that Christ comes to us. And then last week, we discovered the story of water being turned into wine. And, and this was our thought for last week, that God revealed through Jesus uses the ordinary to do the unimaginable. And so we looked that, that God used the ordinary aspects of their culture to then reveal some things, that, the unimaginary. Uh, one of those was that, that there was a myth that the Dionysus God, the God of wine, and, and there'd be these empty kettles. It was kind of the same story that we see where, where water's being turned into wine in Cana. And Jesus is, 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 is kind of being revealed that he is the, the revealing of what the, the Greeks knew to be true, or what they thought to be true. He also used the Jewish water pots of cleansing as a way of saying to the Jew, this is a new way of life. This is a new way of living. No longer is the law the way in which we're going to live, but by grace alone. And so this week we start the third part of our series. Um, it's, been a, it's been a difficult one this week. I don't know why. But some weeks are great. You can write them in five minutes, and, and others just take all week. Uh, this was one of those. I don't know why, but it just happens sometimes. But I was thinking back this week to a time when I was uh, just out of college. Uh, like many of you, you get out of college and you have a new job. Now, I had jobs prior to this. Growing up in high school, I was required to work. I worked for my dad in a hot factory making turbocharger parts for cars, planes, and trains, and automobiles. Great movie, by the way. Um, it was a hot job, you know. But, but my real first job right out of the college is, I'm going to call it a sales job, sort of. Uh, and I can remember my first day in the real work world. It was like, oh, it was exciting. There was this anticipation, but there was kind of some fear. You remember the first time on your first job, there was a little bit of fear. Fear of failure, maybe. But, but there was a sense in which failure was not an option for me. And so I was going to do whatever it took to be successful. And of course, I did. It was long, long hours. And my job over time became sort of a leverage tool. Now, now, here's what I mean by this. I would get up in the morning. There were days where I would get up in the morning. At, well, I wouldn't get up. I would have to be at work around 4.30 in the morning. And I wouldn't get home till midnight. There were some long, long days. They were exhausting. I was working more in two days than people were working all week. 30, 40 hours in a matter of two days. It, it was pretty exhausting. But my schedule kind of consumed my life. It, it got to the point where I no longer had a need for relationships and friendships and, and a belonging and part of community. I didn't even have time for my church community. They would always get together in the evenings and have volleyball nights. They were so much fun. Sand volleyball, play till midnight, whatever. Uh, oftentimes, I wasn't even a part of that. But, but I thought my job was too important. And the reality was I thought I was too important. 
And so we would have conversations like this. I'm guessing you have these conversations too, but the people would come up to me and they'd say, well, how was your week? And I'd say, well, you know, it was busy. I worked, I don't know, 80 or 90 hours this week. And I'd say, wow, how do you do that? And, of course, in my mind I'd think, well, you know, it takes a special kind of guy to work 80, 90 hours a week, you know. I know you're working a measly 40 hours. When you, when you get a real job, come talk to me. That was kind of the attitude. And it became a leveraging tool in some ways to then – to then value my status in life, that, that the more I worked, for some reason, the more valuable I became. And those who didn't work the same amount of hours that I did were somehow invaluable. Now, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's another little secret for you. We like for people to know that we are busy. Am I right? We like for people to know how busy we are. Think about the annoying person that you ride with on the train to work. Some of you ride into Chicago, right? There are always those people who are on the train, on their phone, talking about the meetings that they have today, the important conversations of people that they're going to meet, how busy they are, that they can't even talk to you on the phone because they're so busy, but they're really talking to you on the phone, telling you how busy they are, right? People in the store talking obnoxiously loud about how busy they are in the middle of the store. I don't want to know what you're talking about, but they want you to know that they're important and busy. Am I right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But here's the honest truth. Deep down inside each of one of us, there's pride that work consumes the majority of our schedule. Let me just tell you this. The bad news, it is your fault that pride consumed you, that you work all these hours. The good news is this, is that it's not all your fault that your pride, that you're prideful of all the hours. Here's why. In America, we have we've prided ourselves on hours, busyness, production, and I'll even say this, restlessness. Think about this. From a young age, it is ingrained in our minds. It is sketched into our minds that, that if we want to be successful, we need to work hard. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all about hard work. But here's the problem. We've replaced hard work with the amount of work. That somehow if we work more hours, then, then we'll be successful, rather than working hard. And so the problem is, is that we re- redefined hard work with the amount of work. And so in our restlessness and anxiety, uh, we secure a future. We become restless individuals seeking this emergent ideology of indi- individualism that cuts off from the sustenance of community and tradition. What I'm trying to say is this, is that we've become so self-absorbed that we no longer see our need for people, for neighbors, for church, because we are so important working all these hours. And so Luke this morning paints a different picture for us. Uh, I apologize, in the, in the worship folder, we still have last week's Um, scripture, but this morning we're going to be in Luke 4, verses 14. So Luke this morning gives us a different picture through Jesus of what life for us is supposed to look like. And so if you'll turn with me to John or Luke 4, verse says this, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. 
He then went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. And as was his custom, he stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now I love this. I love this, that Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, not because I'm God's Son, not because I'm performing all these cool miracles. Notice this conditional statement. It's because I am proclaiming the good news to the poor. I like to think at Joliet first, that is our mission here. And because we are proclaiming good news to the poor, that we are seeking those who are marginalized and lost, that is why God's Spirit is moving in this church. If you haven't been with us like the last four weeks, I mean, you have missed a lot. I'm serious. God's spirit is moving. You missed last week. My wife had mascara all all down her face. It was awesome. So he proclaims good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today... Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this morning, uh, Luke paints us this wonderful picture. And he introduces us to these two words. Now, it's kind of a stretch here, but that's okay. I like to stretch things at times. A little bit of stretch here. He, he introduces us, and he uses this thought of Galilee and spirit together. Now, many of you are like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, well this is the thing. God is, is now revealing himself through Jesus in a new way. And the reason we know that is Galilee, also known as Galil. Say, touch your neighbor and say Galil. That's what it means. Galil. Can you all say it? Touch your neighbor say it. It's weird. Say Galil. Yes, Galil, actually now pronounced Galilee, means circle. And the idea was this, that in Galilee, this nation or this, this area was surrounded by foreign nations and people who were not used to Jewish customs. And so this area of Palestine became sort of a... Uh, they became very um, forward-thinking. They were welcoming, welcoming to new ideas. They loved change. They had a disposition towards change. Josephus, who was the governor at one point of the time, described the people this way. He says, um, They were ever fond of innovations and by nature disposed to changes and delighted in sedition. They were ever, re- ever ready to follow a leader who would begin an insurrection. And so I love this thought that that Jesus then chooses Galilee because he knows that these people are going to be receptive to this new thing that he's doing, this new message that he's giving. And so he starts in Galilee, and and his hope there is that that people will begin to accept this message, and it's kind of kindled, and it says that people begin begin to love him. But it also says that he went into Galilee with the power of the Spirit. And so for me, I'll give you a little, a little hint. Every time I see this word spirit within scriptures, immediately I go back to the Genesis story. That is what spirit is. It's the ruach. you got to spit when you say it. Ruach, God's breath, breathing into creation, breathing life into being. That as God creates you, me, the earth, everything that we see, God's breath is, is behind all of that. And so when I think about the Spirit today, that that the Spirit that once created this world is now the Spirit that's being revealed in this God-man, Jesus Christ. We kind of devalue the Spirit in the church in many ways. But I love this thought that that the Spirit that was in 
And God, as He created the world, that was in Jesus Christ as He went into Galilee, is the same Spirit that lives within us as God's people. I'm just not so sure that we believe that. And so, this is really a new beginning as Jesus enters into Galilee. And quickly, we see that in this beginning, He enters into the synagogue. Now, we have to understand a few things about synagogue. I love what Mark does. I know we're in Luke, but I love what Mark does. This is the last time Jesus enters the synagogue. And the reason why I like this is because this is the time where Jesus breaks his tie in relationship with the institution of Judaism and everything that it represents. And so he begins in the synagogue. And there was only one temple, but, and there was only one place that you would go and sacrifice. But, but if there were ten families with, within any uh, area, there would be a synagogue. And this was a place for worship and teaching. And so the question for us is, how does Jesus, this ordinary man, this layman, this carpenter, how does he come into the spotlight and how is he able to teach in the synagogue? There were three aspects to the synagogue and the worship. There would be a time of prayer. The people would come in and they would recite prayers together. They would say their prayers. Then there was a time of scripture reading. And they would meticulously go through God's word and they would read verse after verse. But then there was a time of teaching. And this is the interesting part. They didn't have professional ministers back then. I'll be honest, sometimes I don't know that we need them today. But they didn't have professional ministers back then. And so they had kind of this guy who was a president. And then he would begin to pick people who were kind of distinguished in the crowd to then lead the teaching time, lead the discussion. And so Jesus is kind of, he's kind of gaining momentum here. He's kind of, kind of popular at this point. And he's saying, you know, Jesus, he always says these outlandish and random things. So, of course, the president of the synagogue sits him down and says, we would love for you to teach us today. And so the beauty of it is this, is that Jesus opens this scroll and he begins to proclaim these things that have been taught for all their life. And at the end, he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Today it is fulfilled. And I love this idea of fulfillment that, that no longer is no longer are we going to live by the law, but rather Jesus is the law. That, that Jesus is God, and as I always say, God is like Jesus. This is something new. And as he proclaims who's going to be set free, Who's going to receive their sight? Who is going to be restored in the kingdom of God? The listeners are, are, are kind of brought into this. Because we have to understand that, that this was their history. These were people who were constantly oppressed. These were people who found themselves constantly in slavery. And so he said, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I know many of you are scholars. And so you know more about the Bible than I do. But, but for those of you who aren't aware, the year of the Lord's favor, every 50 years... There was this time where, where they would leave the fields uh, and they would allow them to just rest. All debts were forgiven. All the slaves were set free. Now, you, could you imagine a society where every 50 years, somebody would call you, a debt collector would call you on the phone and say, I know you owe us like $120,000 for, for college, but guess what? Today, you owe nothing. Could you imagine, right? Could you imagine a doctor's office uh, calling you and saying, Listen, we know that you had cancer. We know that you owe us probably about $4 million. But guess what? Your debt's forgiven. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine even better? Every 50 years, 
everybody who was in prison would be set free. Wow. And not that they would just be set free, but guess what? That their debt would be forgiven. That what they had done wrong, the community would say, you know what? No longer are we going to hold you behind a cell, but we are going to restore you to the person that God intended you to be. And guess what? Now you can be part of the community once again. This is the year of the Lord's favor. But think about this, that, that as we are restored, as we are freed, there is something underlying within all of that. As we are released, as these people are freed, there's this sense of, And this is where I kind of like to stretch things. I would like to think that in the year of the Lord's favor, there is Sabbath. There is rest. Now Luke points it out in the scripture this morning. You kind of read over it that, that Jesus participated in Sabbath and he was in the synagogue. But guess what? Sabbath is the underlying theme in this whole passage. That when these people are freed, when, when slaves are, 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 are released, Something is happening. Rest is given. Sabbath is there. And as they hear these words, as I said, they are taken back to a time when, when Pharaoh and the gods of Pharaoh and Egypt were these relentless people who prided themselves on restlessness. You, Israelites, will produce bricks. There will be no rest for you. There will be constant anxiety. These are the gods that the Israelites found themselves under. The beauty of the Exodus Exodus narrative is this, is that God frees his people from restlessness and commodity to covenant and relationship. That was was good. I want want you to hear that this morning. That, That in the Exodus story, God frees his people from restlessness and commodity to covenant and relationship. I read this wonderful book recently. It's called... Sabbath, A Resistance to the Culture of Now by Walter Brueggemann. If you need something to read, it's a short read. It's a great read. But in it, he says this. The Exodus narrative is the emergence of a new social reality in which the life of the Israelite economy is no longer determined and compelled by the insatiable quotas of Egypt and the gods. The God of Exodus is unlike any other God. This is a God committed to mercy, steadfast love and faithfulness, one who's committed to covenant relationships. And at the heart of this divine community is the capacity and the willingness of this God to rest. It's Sabbath. I'm telling you, this this book will change your life. If you don't feel guilty this morning, read the book, you'll feel really guilty. So my question for us this morning is, Why are we so resistant to rest? Why are imaginations captured by restlessness and anxiety? If you haven't figured it out, the whole consumer culture is about competition. The whole uh, consumer game and marketing strategy is that I'm going to tell you that you need this. So that way, once you get it, you'll have some sort of security about about your life. And what we don't realize is that it's become a game against our neighbor. This is why we build up fences around our house. This is why when you pull in the garage, you close the door as soon as you can. 
Because guess what? Your neighbor has become your enemy. Because they're, they're chasing after what you're chasing after. And it's this huge rat race. But God says, now is the time for rest. And so this is my thought for this morning. God revealed through Jesus is not the God of production, but he's the creator of spiritual produce. Now, you've got to work with me here on this one. This is not a God of production, but the creator of spiritual produce. God is a resting God, and we are to be a resting people. But the reason that we rest is so that we can become a fruit-bearing kind of people. It's so we can become a giving kind of people. But to give, you have to be filled. Now, I'm going to go back to a sermon that we we preached a while back, and you'll remember this, this idea, idea of separation, filling, and blessing, that in Genesis... God separates on days 1 through 3, then He fills on days 4 through 6, on day 7, He rests and He blesses the day. This is the rhythm of God's love that we are drawn into. And so for us, Sabbath really is a time where we are separated from the world for just an hour or two. Actually, it should be all day, but... Then we are filled with God's goodness, His love, and His mercy, and His healing. So then we can become... A blessing to the world. That is what Sabbath is about, is for you being filled to then become a blessing. Wendell Berry often talks about this in his poems and his in his essays about he's a farmer in Kentucky, but he often talks about the corruption of farmers today and the overworking of soil. That we have to produce a product so much so that we don't even let our, our, our ground rest. Even soil has a rhythm. It needs rest. And when we give it rest, then it produces a crop that we would never expect. But we don't do that today. So we need a time of rest so that we can then be filled to then produce the gifts of the Spirit to become Christ to the world. Listen, work is not bad. I just think that we're working for all the wrong reasons. Hear me when I say this. You do not belong to the economy of production. You belong to the God who produces life within you. We have a responsibility to rest. Response abled. You have the ability and the responsibility to rest. But my fear is this, is that It's not just about the body. It's not just about the spirit, but it's about the church as well. We'll get into what Paul talked about quickly for just a minute, but but I think we have turned the church, the body, into much what America looks like. That it's this individual endeavor to, to consume a product at church. That going to church is about me. But let me say this, that Church is not a place that we go, but it's a people that we become. It's about becoming the image of Christ. It's about becoming reflections of God's goodness and love to the world. That is what the church is about. But rather, we have made it into this individualistic, self-driven agenda to make you a better person. I'm sorry, but church is not a self-help program. It's not about you. Rather, church is about the body. 
each of us is not only connected to the body, but we are called to contribute to the function of the body as a whole. Now catch that. Many of us feel that we are connected to the body of the church in some way, but there is no contribution to the function of the body as a whole. Here's what I mean by that. At Juliet First, we talk about it every week. Our mission is to be a community of hope. The problem, I think, is this. We, we do some things really, really well, and we do some things not so well. But if I think about the, the, the health of our church, I would, I would tend to say that as Paul talks about the body, we are in somewhat what I would call organ failure. That 20% of us are making up for the 80% who aren't doing any work at all. Paul says in Corinthians that each of us has a responsibility. Each of us has a part. Whether you're unpresentable, I always am interested, who are the unpresentable parts and who are the presentable parts? I don't think that really matters. But, but either way, whatever you are, you have a responsibility to the body. That if you don't contribute, then the body can't function as a whole. Or what happens naturally with the body is that other parts of the body then begin to make up for the parts that aren't working. And I think that at Joliet, I mean, we have a great church, but I think there are plenty of people who are trying to make up for others who don't contribute. And I think some of the reasons why we don't contribute is because we are people who are not rest, rested. We are people who are so strung out on restlessness and anxiety that we have no more to give when it comes to Sunday or throughout the work week. Now, I'm not talking about financially giving this morning. I'm talking about Using the gifts that God has given you for the good of the community and the whole. So the best example I can give is this. One area where we said we are going to invest everything that we have is in our single parents ministry. Some of us don't realize the commitment that it takes to, to run a ministry like that. You see the moms, they come right after work. You know, and, and it starts at 7 o'clock, and they don't have time to make meals. And so we've said, well, hey, let's, let's make meals for these people. Let's make meals for these parents and these moms, so that way when their kids come, they're not eating all of Hopewell's apples. And then Hopewell asked me, where are my apples? <laughs> but rather, we have people in the church who are gifted in the area of hospitality. And we say, just, just for one night out of the month, let me give my Tuesday night to then come and cook a meal for these people so their kids can eat, their bellies can be full, they can be happy, we can play together. That's all we're asking. One night out of the month. And so we send this out to people and, and, and we get one response, one response from the secretary, the one who set it up. She's the only one who has signed up to cook a meal. But Julie, at first, this is where we need your help. Use your gifts to support the body as a whole. Some of you can't cook. I get that. But guess what? I bet you can have a conversation. I bet you can ask a little kid on Tuesday night whether their parents are, are meeting. How are you? How was school? Tell me about your school day. How are things at home? Right? Some of you can talk. I know you can talk. Use that gift. Some of you are good at building up others. Use that gift to invest your life into these little ones. Now, 
I know you're probably tired of me talking about the single parents ministry. Guess what? I don't care. This is the only ministry in the church that I see right now that is bringing forth fruit. Where God is actually working. More people have come to know Christ through these women and through these parents than the majority of us. I'm just being honest this morning. So you can either come every Sunday, sit on your rear end and do absolutely nothing and consume the product that's being given to you. Or you can say, yes, this is a time for me to be filled with God's love. So now I can share that with the body of Christ and we can function as a whole on 100%, not on 20%. Listen, this is encouragement this morning. This is encouragement. That we move beyond the pew. Ladies and gentlemen, it takes a whole church to raise these little kids. And we need your help. We need more than three three guy volunteers on Tuesday night to support these kids. One, let me tell you, I'm just being honest. One dad cannot take care of 15 kids, ages 3 through 14 and 15. It's hard. But we want to allow people to come in and give these guys attention and love. So this morning, the thought is this, is that God is not a God of production. But He's the creator of fruit-filled people. Fruit-producing people. That as we are given rest, as we acknowledge the Sabbath, as we take time from our work to be filled, it's then we are able to pour out and give. So let me encourage you. Please, please, please find yourself part of the body this morning. Call me this week and say, I would love to be a part. I don't know what you're doing on Tuesday, but I want to be a part of it. Call Christy in the front office and say, Christy, I want to make a meal. Can you do that for me this week? Do that for me this week. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with each of you.